This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. There is heightened concern about hospital intensive care units in Ontario filling up with COVID-19 patients and in some cases forcing surgeries to be postponed. At least one hospital in the GTA, Scarborough General, has already cancelled some elective surgeries. Other hospitals are said to be on the verge. Libby was joined on Wednesday by Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, to discuss the COVID-19 situation in ICUs. But she started the conversation by speaking with Dr. Michael Warner, Medical Director of Critical Care at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Warner, what's the situation in your hospital and have you had to cancel any elective surgeries? So my hospital is in excellent shape, actually probably much better than other area hospitals. We have uh, actually a small amount of COVID activity in our hospital. I think that's largely due to the incredible outreach uh, efforts by our infectious disease group. We have seven pop-up testing centers around our hospital. We do outreach into schools and to long-term care homes, which other hospitals have done as well. But that's really helped the the East Toronto situation. I'd say that the impact of COVID on ICUs is is definitely heterogeneic. So there are parts of the province where there's almost no COVID activity, where hospitals are wide open, where canceling surgeries and procedures is, you know, not even within the realm of possibility in the short term. Then there are other hospitals, you know, not too far from my hospital, Scarborough, for example, where about 40% of the ICU patients among their three ICUs have COVID-19. And uh, in York Region and Halton, if we look at all the ICU beds, about 25% of those patients have COVID-19. So it really depends on where you are and the, and which is why I think we'll see local delays and cancellations first. In the first wave, we saw an across-the-board cancellation of elective surgeries and and diagnostic imaging because we weren't sure how bad COVID was going to be. I don't think that'll happen. I don't think it should happen in the second wave because we need to maintain access to non-COVID-related care. Uh, So I think it remains to be seen um, what the impact will be uh, on patients who require ICU care for non-COVID-related illness, but I think we will see cancellations in hot zone regions uh, as time goes on, especially given the trajectory of the number of patients in ICU with COVID lately. Dr. Hoda, what's the situation at the University Health Network? Oh, we, we similarly are in a pretty good position at the moment, So, uh, and, and we don't take that for granted because we're very aware of what's been happening in the GTA in particular, but also in other uh, hotspots uh, across the province, Kitchener-Waterloo being the latest that's really kind of struggling and uh, London Health Sciences uh, many different hospitals are having having troubles, and some of that's driven by outbreaks that are happening um, that are really impacting on capacity for admitting new patients. Uh, also, just the, the biggest driver being the community transmission risk and the, the prevalence in those surrounding communities, and it's very heterogeneic across the GTA even. There are some parts um, where assessment centers 
are recording 15% of the, those tested in their assessment centers are positive, whereas in other areas, it's more like 2 or 3%. So very patchy. And as a result of that, you know, over the last few weeks, we are working more as a system within the hospital networks of the GTA to try and help out um, those that are facing problems and make sure that we're able to maintain equity for access to care for as long as possible in the GTA. Yes, uh, it's not the most urgent cases, but but it is a very difficult situation when you get your radiation or your chemotherapy or whatever it is cancelled or delayed. Mm-hmm. For sure. I don't think anything is elective in the eyes of the patient who's supposed to receive the service. So that term elective procedure surgery is really a misnomer because it's all really important. And even if you're, you know, if you're waiting for a hip replacement or a knee replacement, we don't want those patients on painkillers. We don't want them on opioids. We want them uh, to get their surgery so they can return, you know, mobile to the life they had before. So delaying anything really has some long-term costs and consequences for patients and for society. What would you like to leave us with, Dr. Hota? I think we're at a really critical time right now in the GTA and in Ontario, frankly, in Canada, and people really need to buckle down, which is a difficult message to deliver given that we're heading into the holiday season. Um, but, we, you know, what we're just talking about right now, reducing contacts as much as possible is so critical right now so we can buy ourselves some time before vaccine vaccines become available. Dr. Warner? Well, you know, I'm all about clear, consistent, transparent communication from the government. I think that would help people and most of us have COVID fatigue, really kind of get through this difficult winter. So we need to make sure that the science and the public health measures decisions are made clear to people and that if politicians are going to have the microphone, they speak uh, directly based on what the scientists are telling uh, us as Ontarians that we should be doing to keep ourselves safe. I think that's really important. Dr. Michael Warner, Medical Director of Critical Care at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto, and Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It seems that with all the preoccupation with COVID-19, we have not been as focused on cancer as much as usual. And in addition to the bad news about delays in treatment... There is good news about advances in the treatment of some very difficult forms of the disease. For decades, doctors have mainly been using surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation to treat cancer patients. But the biggest advance in recent years has been with a different type of therapy, immunotherapy. It harnesses the patient's immune system to fight the cancer. It is particularly successful in treating skin and lung cancer and has great promise with other forms of the disease. How does immunotherapy work and how has it allowed patients to live longer? Libby asked this of Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Centre who specializes in lung cancer. I think we can be pleased that, you know, despite all of the concerns that we've all had, that Largely uh, across the country in most centers, cancer treatments, immunotherapies, chemotherapies, which are intravenous treatments, they have been able to to keep going. Um, some adjustments somewhere um, and sometimes in, in the frequency that treatments have been given, but not to any detrimental effect. Now, this is kind of an old idea, but it's really been advanced in the last few years. And I believe that to start... 
the kinds of immunotherapies were uh, what would be called systemic. They were like a carpet bomb. It was your whole immune system, but now they're more targeted or there are different kinds that are more targeted, right? That's right. The the concept of immunotherapy or harnessing the immune system to fight cancer is is an old one. It's been going on for it's been researched for for many years, and in the form of some vaccines and things, which um, and, and some of these sort of carpet bomb approaches, the older drugs, uh, ones called interferon and interleukin, which are sort of part of your existing immune system, and you just give intravenous doses of it, and they were you know, at best, modestly effective and at worst, quite tough to take. Um, these new drugs, we call them checkpoint inhibitors um, because that um, that uh, that cloak that I kind of alluded to over a cancer cell, you know, another way of imagining that is it's a, it's a brake on a car. You've got a car sitting on a hill and you need the brake to stop the car running. And that's the, the, the check on the car is your brake. And it's similar with the immune system, these checkpoints. And the, these drugs, we sometimes call them checkpoint inhibitors because it's like taking the brake off the car, which is your immune system, which can then start to move and run down the hill and go after the cancer. So these, so, so you're right, immunotherapy as a concept is old, but checkpoint inhibitors, these new drugs, have been the ones that have actually, actually um, made a difference. When... People hear about harnessing the immune system. It, it sounds to them like something very natural to do and, and uh, benign, but there, there can be some pretty serious side effects from this. There can, but I think, you know, we need to put that in, in context. Uh, generally, for the vast majority of people, these drugs are very well tolerated, very manageable. For the vast majority of people, extremely manageable, minor side effects, to the point that there are people that I would be nervous about prescribing chemotherapy to. I'd be wondering if they were strong enough, but I'm more comfortable giving immunotherapy to. Immunotherapy side effects tend to be when that T-cell activation, that immune ramp-up, um, doesn't just go after the cancer cells, but can can also go after some other part of the body. So, for example, if it went after your skin, you'd, you'd get a big red itchy rash. Um, uh, and it, it can do that to just about any organ. If it was on, if if your if your bowel, for example, got targeted, you, people get diarrhea. So, yes, you can get side effects. Generally, quite manageable and generally quite mild. Does it mean that patients have to be on this for? Uh, lengthy periods of time or for the rest of their lives? What we're seeing now is people who respond well to immunotherapy, they don't need to stay on it for a long time. And we haven't quite yet figured out what the optimal duration that should be on treatment is. But for people who complete a course of immunotherapy, they can, and the cancer still under control, we're seeing now people live for years after that without needing any more treatment. So it really has changed uh, lives and stage four squamous cell lung cancer. You know, it used to be that the average life expectancy would be less than a year, and now we're seeing people you know, with immunotherapy. We're seeing many people, not all, but many, live for many years and live well. Dr. Paul Wheatley Price, medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Center. 
I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, small retailers are told no by Premier Ford. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Everyone, including Premier Doug Ford, acknowledges it's unfair to shutter non-essential businesses in Toronto and Peel while big box stores remain open during the current lockdown. This past week, a group of 50 retailers sent an open letter to the governing PCs asking them to lift the restrictions, arguing they are also ineffective. But the premier responded by saying he's been advised by public health experts that one-stop shopping in big box stores is better for curbing the spread of the virus than when people make several stops at smaller retailers. To discuss this contentious issue, Libby Snymer was joined on Thursday by Zach McCarthy, Ph.D. student in the Faculty of Science at York University, who's conducted a study on the matter, along with epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and one of the retailers protesting the lockdown, Heather Reisman, chief executive of Indigo Books and Music. We fully appreciate the medical issue. Like That is number one. And if anybody cares about it, it's retailers who have had to operate and keep staff and customers safe all this time. So health, for sure, is first. Our issue is with the strategy to address the, the health issue. And it is because there is lots of um, uh, data that suggests it is not shoppers that create the problem. And in fact, pushing more and more shoppers into fewer and fewer stores could exacerbate rather than help the problem. The important issue is to keep staff safe. The spread, if spread is coming from anywhere, it is not from shoppers. And in fact, retail in total accounts for less than 1%. It accounts for between 0.3 and 0.9% of any spread of the virus. And that, by the way, is the government's own data. Shoppers should come in for the shortest time as possible and then leave. And the more they can shop close to home, the better, and not having them wait in long lines to get into ever fewer stores. So important for them to follow all the guidelines, the mask, etc., and to keep staff very safe. We have, all of us, very, very few cases because we are so careful. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. And Zach McCarthy is a PhD student in the Faculty of Science at York University. So yesterday, the Premier said, yep, one-stop shopping is safer than going to multiple stores. Is there evidence for that? I think that's another one of the uh, false dichotomies that we, we're faced with quite repeatedly from uh, the political branch. 
uh, I can I can describe quite easily. Whereas a large box store, if it's not managed properly, and if you get too many people in there and they're too densely packed and they're not wearing masks and so on, would be far more dangerous than going to a small store that's well managed. And and and, if, and the converse as well. If you pack them into the small store and they're not taking the precautions and masking and distancing and hand hygiene and so on, that could be more dangerous than the box store that is separating people. So it's not as easy as, as what has been stated. Let's bring in Zach McCarthy. What does your study show? So we conducted a study about the first wave of the Ontario uh, COVID-19 epidemic. The sense is that the measures that were put in place, so we had a school closure, state of emergency and distancing advisories, and the non-essential workplace closure. So what we found is we estimated uh, that these uh, interventions were effective in driving the reproduction number below one, uh, and this was in April. And this was achieved through a reduction in the contacts that each individual makes on average from slightly above 12 per day to just under seven. And a majority of these contacts later taking place in the household before the reopening. We really need to, to limit our contacts. And But I, what I would also like to add is that we need to keep distance. The, the hygienic measures need to be put in place, the adequate management, uh, you know, compliance with the store's guidance are all really key factors, and these need to be weighed uh, appropriately. So in close consultation with the uh, guidance of the government uh, is really key for, for, this, for this item. Zach McCarthy, Ph.D. student in the Faculty of Science at York University. Epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University and Heather Reisman, Chief Executive of Indigo Books and Music. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. First, it was toilet paper and paper towels. Then it was patio furniture and heaters. Now, as Christmas approaches, we're being warned about another shortage of Christmas trees. Demand for natural Christmas trees is said to be up by 25% this year. As the pandemic rages on, we're staying at home, or at least we should be staying at home, rather than traveling. And so there are many who want to make their home more beautiful and comforting. To discuss, Libby was joined on Tuesday by Rob Keane, CEO of Forests Ontario, and Shirley Brennan, Executive Director of Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario. This year, we have farms that have already closed for the season because they have sold there are a lot of trees for this year. We've seen wholesalers uh, know that they were going to be sold out in July because that's when orders start coming in. It has just been an amazing year, and the demand is about 25%. But a lot of that 25% is new people coming out that have not ever had a Christmas tree, a real Christmas tree. And uh, is, is it possible that it's just a matter of people getting their trees early? That's part of it. Part of it is people are getting their trees early um, with the pandemic being a target that is moving at all times. I think a, a little bit of fear is in there. We, we need that tree beforehand. It is also, you know, we have put it out in the media to, you know, 
be proactive and get that tree and don't wait until the end. But it's also because people want something. They want hope. They want to hold on to something. They want to get their families outside and create those memories that they've always had or to start new ones. And that's what we're seeing. Rob Keane, you're trying to encourage people to get a real tree as opposed to uh, an artificial tree. Absolutely, Libby. Uh, we certainly know that you know the beauty of real trees, uh, the fragrance of them, and the fact that they're 100% biodegradable, biodegradable make them a much more environmentally friendly choice than, than the fake trees or the artificial trees, as you said. How long does a tree last? I, I've been wondering if if you get the tree early, uh, is it going to be nice by the time Christmas rolls around, or is it you know going to start uh, looking like it's had its day? Surely they, they will last. There's certainly some species that will last a little bit longer than others. Uh, but one of the key things is to make sure when you're picking out your, your tree that it's nice and fresh, um, the the uh, the twigs of the tree are supple, and then you, when you bend them slightly, they don't break. If you if you go to the end of the the branch of the twig, and you you do bend it and it snaps off, that's a really bad sign. You can also tell by the freshness of the tree just by giving it a gentle shake. And if you get an excessive number of needles that fall off, and it's probably not that fresh, a few a few needles are expected. The big thing with with keeping the tree fresh and looking great and smelling great is to, uh, when you get it set up in your house, cut off a very small cookie on the bottom of the tree, uh, and that allows water to be absorbed up into the tree much quicker and uh, more readily. And certainly watering the tree daily will keep it nice and fresh for a lot longer. What are you seeing in the places that sell them, Shirley? So um, so some of the things that we're, we're seeing is that the corner lots tend to be the ones that are, are reporting that they have um, not had the trees that they expected to come in or that they have gone a lot quicker. And then they have some that aren't even able to open due to the restrictions of COVID. But at our farms, we're showing that we worked from January right through until opening, opening day, working with each individual public health to put safety protocols in place. And it's been very positive. The, the comments we've got through the media and also through people calling my office and talking at the farms, they've been very happy to see the, the protocols in place and know that there's trees out there. And we're educating people that, like Rob said, there are different types of trees and we're educating people on you might not be able to get that Fraser fir. You might have to have a different type of, of tree, to, but you still could get that tree. And that's what we're seeing. A lot of people, it's been, been very positive. Shirley Brennan, Executive Director of Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario and Rob Keane, CEO of Forests Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Nelson in Strathroy phoned to talk about COVID-19 vaccine supply. 
they're bashing the government that they didn't get enough uh, vaccines. The thing is, we have people that usually 10% of the population is go-getters. They want to get the vaccines first. Then you get a, the mass population might sit back and wait to see what the, the processes are going to happen. And then you get the rest that don't want to take any. So I think what they've purchased should be sufficient for the time being. The U.S. is also posing problems that Moderna might not have sufficient for themselves being made for the U.S. Uh, because of all of the obligations they have for the other countries. Will that pose a problem for us if they impose issues as they posed for the PPE prior? Rob in Beaverton called to share with Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price details of his cancer treatment. Started as throat cancer, but spread to bone cancer and small C lung cancer. And I'm on um, Nevolab. Nevolumab. Yeah. Things were bleak, I thought, before uh, I started this. Uh, a great improvement, I have to admit. Um, and it's working on my bone cancer, too. I was down to using a wheelchair to get around the hospital. And uh, with the radiation and then uh, the immunotherapy, I feel, you know, 90% better. I don't know if that's the way to put it, better. Have you had side effects? Uh, personally, no. Uh, I've been very lucky. I just wanted to say, though, that, uh, that uh, they, the treatment is, uh, it, 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 it treated me very well. Told me at home with good news about it uh, shrinking. And uh, gives you a little more confidence when they call you at home and say the results are really uh, good, you know. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Pat in Toronto, who phoned about the controversy over shutting down non-essential retailers during the lockdown. We're assuming that this uh, is all being communicated properly. I'm not sure everybody believes everything that comes from the premier. And so wouldn't the best thing be to have other people involved and understand how the decisions have been made? In other words, bring in Mayor Tory, bring in Mayor Crombie, bring in a couple of outsiders to un- outsiders with expertise to understand, because then they can say, we've looked at this, we understand why this is being done. Because otherwise, many of us are frustrated because we don't understand why some of these things are being done or other things aren't being allowed. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.